Hello, I'm Don Chambers, and it is a pleasure to be with you all with Senator Joe Manchin from my home state of West Virginia today uh, on Chambers Talks. It's a chance for our 250,000 plus listeners on uh, and followers uh, on LinkedIn, as well as Facebook and other channels uh, to talk about disruption that's going on, often driven by technology, but new job creation and how it changes business models and how many of us believe our nation needs to become a startup nation and each state needs to become a startup state. Uh, it's an honor to be with my friend and Senator Manchin, if it's all right, may I call you Joe in this session? Please, John. We've never Thank changed. You. We've known each other most of our lives. We sure have. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's an honor for you to be here. I think you're a great American. I think you're representative of what West Virginia makes us so proud. Uh, you've been the senior senator from West Virginia and re-represented both our state and our nation amazingly well. Uh, even though I'm a moderate Republican, uh, which is kind of an endangered species out here in California, uh, you have been, in my opinion, our best governor we've ever had. I'm a moderate Democrat, and that's definitely an endangered species in West Virginia. It is in many ways. Uh, also, a Secretary of State, and maybe one of the areas yeah. we'll get into, Joe, is that you always learned how to work bipartisan, not one party or another party, but just doing the right thing. You're on the chairman of the Senate Energy uh, and Natural Resources Committee, on the Committee for Appropriations and Armed Service and Veterans Affairs. Uh, you grew up in a small town called Farmington, and uh, I needed to look exactly where that was outside of Weirton when we were preparing for this. But you know West Virginia well. Uh, you're an avid uh, pilot, an outdoors person, hunter, uh, motorcyclist, et cetera. Uh, and uh, uh, I want to say from the very beginning, you are courageous. Uh, you always play things right down the middle you, of the road. You tell people what you think. You try to do, to the best of the ability, always just the right things. You have your priorities in place. What are the longer-term implications on jobs, uh, startups, et cetera, for all of the country? And uh, I would love to have you talk some of today about how business and government work together, but you've done that remarkably well over the years. I think you represent our country as one of the very top senators uh, from any party uh, in our country. I'm proud to be your friend and a strong supporter in every way. So thank you for being here today. And it's an honor, sir. Thank you for having me, John. It's always good to be with you. And we can share our thoughts back and forth and learn a lot from each other. But most importantly, from all of your uh, listeners and all of your uh, participants, they can help us immensely. You really can. You know, it's interesting. When we started transforming West Virginia to a startup state and government and business started working very much together, and you've been involved since the beginning, almost everybody I ask around the world, not in the country, but around the world, it could be in India, it could be uh, in France and Paris, uh, uh, ask them to help our mountain state. They did. What is that uniqueness of West Virginia almost heaven? What is so unique that you fell in love with the state, and I clearly did. And maybe mm -hmm. share a little bit your growing up background to educate the people that we're going to be talking with about maybe even remote workers in the state and moving their companies to the state. Well, you know, we're an energy producing state, John, as you know. But if you look at the history of West Virginia, how we became a state was all the Civil War. So we were we were born out of out of the the, the wars, uh, the, the fires of war, if you will. And we decided there was a better way to do it and a better way to go about that in 1863. We really broke in 1861 at the start of the Civil War when basically the state of Virginia succeeded. You know, and Richmond broke away and, and we were left with the handprint. If you look at our state, 
the panhandle. We have a panhandle on the top and a panhandle on the side. We have eastern and northern. And those lines were drawn by Abraham Lincoln. So the the, the heritage and, and, the, and the history of our state is like none other. The first shot of the Civil War was fired in, uh, in uh, West Virginia. Uh, and uh, then uh, John Brown's raid, which basically started the Civil War, was in West Virginia, Harper's Ferry. So all of that comes to a combination that we were discovered as a state, as a, as a new state, but also as the richness we have as far as in our, uh, our coal and our timber. And most of the East Coast was built off the timber, the virgin cut timber out of West Virginia. Uh, then basically uh, the coal and the natural gas that we had, uh, which fueled us uh, to be the industrial giant that we are and, and propelled us to be the uh, superpower of the world. We've won the wars because of the energy we had in our backyard and we use it to our benefit. So I always say West Virginia is a very, very patriotic state. We are so proud. And the people that basically live in our state and serve in our state have an un unbelievable uh, uh, commitment and loyalty and patriotic values that we have as Americans. And I said, you know, we've mined the coal that made the steel, that built the guns and ships, uh, and that basically built the factories of the Industrial Revolution to give us the quality of life we have today. And for that, you can't leave them behind. And I think some people that know our background and our history understand that. So here's proud people that want to keep contributing. And I've always said this, government should be your partner, not your provider. It's your a good partner. And a good partnership, both sides have to be happy and do well. And right now we're looking for that extended partnership so West Virginia can show what she has to offer. And not just in continuing to defend, or they think we're defending um, coal or natural gas, or not transitioning into a clean, cleaner environmental technology-wise. But you have to deal with the facts. And right now, John, we can show them how we can use all of the above. Coal, gas, nuclear, wind, solar, geothermal. We can use it all and use it in the cleanest fashion through technology. And you can't eliminate your way to a clean environment, but you can innovate your way to a clean environment. The rest of the world is doubling down on fossil while we're moving and transitioning away. The last 20 years, they haven't followed us at all. They've, no, they've doubled down, tripled down almost in their demand and usage of fossil when we have basically kind of weaned ourselves away from that because the market and the market will pick the winners and losers. It's not going to be government. And with that being said, we have to make sure that we continue to innovate. Uh, and if, I've said this, if the United States of America, and especially if West Virginia can't be a leader in showing how to use these, these uh, energy sources in the cleanest fashion with technology, then no one else in the world will invest into them. They have no, there's no desire for them to do it, John. We've got to lead the world and show them how to use the sources, the resources and fuels are going to use, John, in the cleanest fashion. They're not going to eliminate them. I completely agree, Joe. For many of the listeners, uh, I, just to give you a little bit of background, West Virginia was the chemical center of the world, the timber center of the U.S., uh, the coal center of the U.S., 6,000 engineers in 
uh, Charleston area alone of the top engineers in the chemical industry. And because we didn't change, we got left behind. And now we're looking as a state on how do we come back as a startup state that can be a model for everyone else. And much what occurred in France with Macron that I was part of and in India with Modi about transforming their countries is, Joe, what you're doing and the governor's doing and Gordon Gee is doing, the business leaders in West Virginia. And it is almost heaven. It's a great place to work and be a part of. And uh, we are dreamers that make dreams come true. Talk a little bit about elements of job creation. And you've been a part of Vantage Ventures, which is launched with West Virginia University with the startups. You've been heavily involved in creating a, a very federal state combination that works together on everything from taxes uh, to job creation and makes it an attractive place to work. Uh, paint the vision of what we can look like five years from now or 10 years from now as a startup state. And, and what people may not realize, the Democrats and Republicans are working remarkably close together in the state just to do the right thing in a way I haven't seen in any other state. Your thoughts? Well, John, I, I think we have an unbelievable opportunity. And right now we're on a precipice of, of getting our state wired completely. You know, when you think about uh, the 1930s, uh, rural America and West Virginia is considered a rural state. Most people live in rural areas. Maybe 10 percent of the people had electricity. Majority did not. But then along comes FDR, rural electrification. And by the late 30s, we were getting most of America wired up. If we could do it in the 30s, we're electrification. Why can't we do it with connectivity right now with our internet? And that's the big thing. So West Virginia is about ready to explode to get every nook and cranny of our state connected if, with the amount of money the federal government's putting in and also the, the partnerships that we're, that we're forging. That happens, that's a game changer because it's proven with the pandemic, people wanted to get out of the metropolitan areas. They wanted to go to the rural areas and you couldn't get a cabin in West Virginia. We have some of the most beautiful parks you couldn't find a remote area where there wasn't people from out of state. And if they could just connect, they said, we just stay here. So we know they want to be in West Virginia and they want to make, basically enjoy the quality of the life we have, but also enjoy the opportunity to make a, a good living. And we've proven through the pandemic that can be done. The workforce has changed, I think, in a transformational way, such as after World War II. They weren't going back on the farm, John. Yeah. They wanted more. They wanted more. Our parents wanted more and they got it. So this is what we're going, we're going as transformational change right now. West Virginia has everything to offer. There are people who want to be part of a startup. You want to be part of a startup, even though we're a state that was born in 1863, we want to rebirth also. We want you to come. We want you to be part of that, to be involved on a local level, on a state level, on a federal level and your input. And I can tell you one thing, I've always said this, we'll be the best partner you've ever had. We'll be the best partner because we'll stick with you all the way through. If it's one job, 10 jobs, 100 jobs or 1,000 jobs, they're extremely important to us. So we're there to help support and basically make sure that government does not become an impediment, but becomes basically a good ally. You know, when we outlined a vision of West Virginia Startup State, Joe, five years ago, and we talked about our natural resources, more fast water and water trails than anywhere in the East, uh, the uh, more biking trails and hiking trails, and uh, great universities like WVU and Marshall that are coming together with the common vision of this. In a period of five years, initially, we, I think, inspired hope this is possible. And then all of a sudden, people began to realize 
oh, this might actually be doable. Now you can feel the momentum changing from the data robot of the world coming and locating a huge amount of the resources there. Uh, the Virgin Hyperloop that talks about you could literally work in West Virginia and have your office in Chicago and be there in an hour right. with this technology. In the energy category you talked about, there's over a dozen energy startups now looking at coming and, and centering around our capability. And the West Virginians are giving back both business leaders, but also many of the people that own the land with creating the right environment overall. So take us the next step a little bit. Uh, you know, when you think about the areas of investment, uh, why would a energy company want to come to West Virginia? And could you expand on your earlier thoughts on that? Well, the energy, you know, we have the traditional energy and we always had that, you know, for the coal and the gas and all that. We have to transform ourselves to nuclear now because there's some tremendous innovation going on in the nuclear field, module nuclear, that we could basically, as our coal-fired plant, some of those have timed out, if you will, and closed down. The platform is perfect to put nuclear in. Perfect. Switches is all there. Switch stations are there. All the basic necessities are there. They're usually on the water where we need some cooling. All this is ready to go. So it could be a tremendous transformation for us. Also, we're talking about turning in some of our uh, abandoned mine lands, if you will, into solar farms. We have some of the largest uh, wind windmills east of the Mississippi. So we're an all-in energy state. If people just think that West Virginia has dirty coal, they're absolutely, totally wrong in their conception about that. What we have is the cleanest coal-fired plants in the world. And with that, we have reliable power. But also, we're also home to so much other energy. And now we found out we have geothermal in parts of our state. We're starting to explore geothermal for a reliable baseload energy. So, John, people coming to West Virginia, and that's what we're talking about. That's where the innovative and creativeness should come from. What more from a state that's been traditional for over 100 years and supplied energy and made the country what we are today? Why would you not want to be there, that transformational? Why would you want to not be on the cutting edge if you had something to take us from A to point B, C, or beyond? That's where we are today, and we welcome that. We welcome using our traditional with the new energies of the future. Hydrogen, John. Hydrogen. We're going to, we're going to have a tremendous hydrogen hub. So the people are basically, we don't rely on, we're not relying on foreign entities. We make all that ourselves. Completely agree. What people may not realize is one of the reasons using Bertrand Hyperloop as an example that we won the bid versus 17 other states is we used all of our experience in mining and building roads and construction and, and the issues from that were left over in terms of the residues from the uh, coal industry and really put it in place. And uh, uh, it's why you find people fall in love with the state. Redoing the whole curriculum at West Virginia University, Gordon Gee, doing an amazing job. And our tax structure is welcoming to business and direction. So now let me move over to a little bit government and bipartisanship in government. Before I do, let me get the real tough question on the table, Joe. How long will it be before West Virginia wins a Big 12 championship in football? And uh, uh, what do you think our record will be next year? So we'll get the tough question on the table. Then we'll tough jump question to right now. I'm hoping we're in the ACC and we'll win, it. We'll win the ACC conference. <laughs> <laughs> it will be uh, the ACC. I've always been partial to ACC because yeah. of our fans. We travel our state, our, our fan base travels well, uh, and uh, they're loyal as can be. And the ACC would be natural for West Virginia traveling up and down the coast. 
but with that, Big 12 has been good to us, uh, and it's very competitive. And uh, I really believe that, that Neil Brown is about a year away from having some uh, quality people with the skill sets he needs and the skill in the right places. He's the right person. I'm still behind him a thousand percent. And I think if I had a son that was um, able to play Division One ball, Neil Brown be the kind of coach I wanted to play for. I agree. For those of you who don't know, he came out of Toria University. He's an amazing coach. Kentucky, Kentucky young man. Yeah, Kentucky background. His father was a coach, learned how you built sports uh, to change a high school in terms of the direction, et cetera. And he is, he is exactly the type of leader that we're so proud of in West Virginia. Moving John, if I could say one thing about, you know, before we transition, okay. uh, the thing that people need to know is about the tremendous quality of opportunities we have of, of, of recreation. Uh, I just came back from the New River Gorge. I had my family there. We yeah. ran the Upper Gully. Unbelievable. We have the zip lines. We have it. You name it, we've got it. Hiking trails, rock climbing, national park. It's all right there. And then if you like if you like trail riding, like all, all train vehicles, the Hatfield McCoy with thousands of miles of road uninterrupted. Nice places where you can eat and stay all through southern West Virginia. Uh, and there's just so much to offer. We have the Ohio River. Uh, even they call it the Ohio River. It's the West Virginia River. You know that. Yes, and uh, then the trout streams. We have some, you know, we're the birthplace of the rivers, John. And you think about it, we're the Eastern Divide. Half of our water starts in Pocahontas County, flows over to the Atlantic Ocean, which goes down to the Chesapeake Bay. The other half flows over to the Mississippi, which is, goes into the Gulf. So when you think about what we have, and uh, Charlie Jones, uh, I think you know the name well, Charlie Jones, Amherst Cole. Yes. But Charlie Jones was so, when Charlie Jones was 98 years old, he came to me and he said, Joe, the West is on fire and it needs water. He says, I've got a design here that we could put a 48 inch line and basically sell water clear across the United States and furnish the West with the amount of water that we have plenty of. And he was showing me how we could do it. It is unbelievable. And I think that is something that's going to be needed because the West is really drying up. But Charlie had this an unbelievable plan. And I've got all the drawings on where the water comes from. The largest pool that we have in the eastern United States is right in Kentucky, West Virginia line that we could furnish all the water they would need. It'd be unbelievable. So we have a lot to give and we have a lot to offer. And we have one of the most forested, beautiful states. And there's just uh, we want people to enjoy what we've enjoyed. We have plenty of room. We've got plenty of room unoccupied spaces and no one will be stepping on you. And it's, it's the best place I think in the world to live in many ways, especially if you love the outdoors. My dad believed in your vision of the water 20 years ago and you knew him well, Joe. Yeah, sure. He always got the transitions right, but he felt that our next natural resource for the state to be able to deliver to others is water uh, and very, very clean. Switching to bipartisanship. You've always been able to walk that line in our state. I know now with the nation often moving way left in some groups and way right in others, America wants to be led from the middle. Yeah. Uh, do you think with the example of the infrastructure bill that looks like it's going to go through, uh, that uh, we are going to learn to work closer together between uh, the two parties? Or is it really tough now and might it get worse in the future uh, in terms of how to work together? Because in my mind, you're kind of the role model that's been able to do that. Well, everyone's, I guess, nature different in politics. 
after you're in this town of D.C. for a while, John, it becomes pretty tribal. And they believe you better be loyal to your tribe. And I've got to be honest, the only tribe I belong to is the American independent tribe. That's the tribe above a Democrat or Republican tribe. So when I look at things, I always look at it. I don't have all the answers. I need help. And whatever I'm in, if I'm in my Democrat caucus talking, I get their perspective. But then I want to talk to my Republicans to get their perspective and find out if there's a pathway forward. Sometimes you have to look at something and say, we just have irreconcilable differences. So let's not go down this path. Put that one aside. That'll be for another day. What can we agree on? What can we make better? How do we improve it? Uh, how can you go home? And, and, and I've always done this, John. When I'm talking to somebody in the political arena that I know I'm asking them if they would look at my point of view, I've got to put myself in their point of view first or in their position to yeah. think of it be a hardship. If it's a hardship for them to go back, whether it be for you to go back to your investors or to your board or whatever in your company, no different. I've got to look at that person. Can that person go home and still be able to, to defend themselves on the decisions they're making? Or am I, make, am I asking them to make an ultimate sacrifice? Sacrifice yourself for this position here. There might be a few uh, for the sake of our country that has to be done, but we're not at that level. These are decisions, policy decisions. These are not life-saving decisions or uh, country, uh, country loyalty or country saving. So basically, if they're political policy decisions, then try to work around that and say, okay, I don't want to put you in a difficult position. Can you go home and explain it? And I've always said this, John, if I can explain it at home, I can vote for it. If yes. I can't explain it, it doesn't make sense. I can try all my might and I can't convince myself to vote for it because I can't explain it. And I've been up front with everybody, whether it be the president or anyone else that says, what do you think? I said, that doesn't make any sense. And I'll give you one, one thing. They wanted to increase unemployment benefits. We wanted to help people through the pandemic. But they wanted to increase it. They've been for $300, you know, additional, $300 additional week on top of what your unemployment benefits through the pandemic. They started out at 600, went to 300. All of a sudden they wanted to now jump them up to 400. And I said, let me ask you a question. How do I go home and explain to people if you can just stay unemployed for a little bit longer, you get a raise? Does that make any sense at all? And then on top of that, they wanted to give $10,200 of credit for your unemployment income. We've never done that. It's always been, it's always been basically taxable income. And I said, how do I go home and I tell a person who's an essential worker in a grocery store who's still working that I'm so sorry, but if you were unemployed, uh, you would get not only unemployment benefits, but you would get basically tax deferred or tax uh, deferred income. I said, guys, that's not fair. We can't do things like this because it's just un we're making some people that are essential work, some people that weren't essential or their jobs lost, not no fault of their own. But with that, we were giving special compensation. And I said, I'm, that's not who I am. That's what I say. I can explain that. I couldn't explain just go, go, go along to get along. Didn't make any sense, John. So I'm in those kind of predicaments as policy all the time. And I'm just up front with people. And I said, I'm sorry. But now being 50-50, John, is a much different. Because one yeah. vote, yes, one vote, and I've said this about being a dead tie, one vote. If you make major policy changes, if you do things that are truly on a partisan vote and such a slim majority and all only majority we have, 
is the presidency with the vice president who sits as the president of the Senate makes it 51. So we're, we're virtually tied. Can't you work a little harder if you're a virtual tie to work something in a bipartisan way? And if you work in bipartisan ways, John, then it sustains itself. It, it, it'll, it'll continue on. If we flip back and forth every time we have a political change in Congress or president, I'll guarantee you, if we make it so easy to flip back and forth, like getting rid of the filibuster, which makes the Senate different than anybody in the world, where we have to, whether you like him or not, you better make an effort to talk to that person because nothing's going to happen. If they don't have to talk to the other person, which most of them don't want to talk to the other person, then it makes it so easy to get rid of the filibuster as well. 51 votes, we can just shove it down their throat. And I'll guarantee you one thing, they'll come back and shove it down your throat as soon as they become the majority. And our type of politics goes back and forth. So if it's going back and forth, we'd be nothing, nothing but a third world country. There's no stability. And if we don't take care of our debt right now, $29 trillion, and start paying attention to it, we're going to have monopoly money pretty soon. I love the way you always keep the big picture in mind, using my words, the North Star. Yeah. Uh, what values, if you were to be explaining it to to your family or to the people in West Virginia or to the country, what are the basic values you, you have in life that's allowed you to stay so focused on your, your North star, what you believe is right? Cause it's hard to do Joe. It sounds easy. It, the pressure I know that you're facing is huge from all sides. And yet you've been amazingly through that. Uh, and I want to thank you for that, having the courage and I couldn't be more proud to be your friend, but what values could you teach the other leaders listening to this, regardless of whether they're an individual contributor, CEO of a company, or the CEO of a large company, what values have allowed you to stay on, on focus? John, we're all a product of our environment. You are who you are by where you were raised, how you were raised, and who raised you. That's it. Never leaves you. Never leaves you. And same with me. So we've both been blessed. And I, I, now that I'm thinking about Colin Powell, we just lost him recently, Colin Powell. Yes. And when you, think about Colin, you know, when you think about Colin Powell, and he had the promises, the five promises to children. So I said, you are who you are. And I was raised as a privileged child. And people think, privileged child in, in West Virginia? I said, well, you probably think about a big home or a fancy neighborhood. I live between the tracks and the creek. Okay. I lived in a three-room garage apartment. So why did I think I was privileged? Why? Well, I had unconditional I had unconditional love my entire life. I always knew no matter how bad I screwed up or whatever I did wrong, someone still loved me beyond that. And they were always there for me. So I looked at and Carl, Colin Powell and I were talking one time. We got so involved in his five promises. Every child should have a loving, caring adult. Unfortunately, John, maybe people aren't as lucky as you and I to have that guidance from our parents, you know, our, our parental guidance. It might be uh, a family member, might be another friend, but that child needs to know they have unconditional love. That's a responsibility of all of us. Next of all, child has to have a safe place. John, unfortunately, it's not always the home anymore because we have a lot of dysfunction going on throughout our country. And with that being said, we better step up to the plate. And next of all, child need a healthy start. Nutrition is not always provided at home. How do we do this? Especially if you're going to give a child a start in life. And fourth, every child should have a, uh, have a skill set. That's why we're committed to education. But we're not watching the outcome base of education to make sure that children are getting what we're committed to giving them which is a quality education to compete in a global economy in the 21st century. Don't you think we ought to be looking at ourselves a little differently? Can't we do better in education? And the fifth thing, as I told you before, 
They should grow to be a loving, caring adult and give something back. Well, if they see you involved in their life, if they see a community involved, that's where West Virginia comes in. We will. It'll take a community to raise a child. They say a village to raise a child. It takes the whole darn state in West Virginia to raise a child. And we're all committed to that. So that's another reason to come and work with us. So I'm just saying that to all the leaders out there, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you are. And don't forget your purpose in life. It's to leave a little bit better. And it's not all about you. And it's not all about the successes. If you've been very, very blessed and, and prosperous, you have, a, you have an opportunity to give something back, but you have a responsibility. That's the American way. Leave it better than you got it. And basically, everyone can do that. And so I said, whether you have no monetary values whatsoever, you can't give of monetary goods. The greatest thing you have and probably the most valued thing is your time and effort, more so than your dollars. And you need that more than anything. Completely agree. You know, uh, Colin Powell was a very good friend for many years. I had him speak to 25,000 of my employees at, at Cisco in one session, and he smoked me. He was so good on stage, and he had everybody in terms of just pulling them together. And, and I pride myself in public speaking, but he played at a different level. But he did all his core values. And most recently, I'm on the board at Bloom Energy, where he was the board member and a very good friend. And he would leave the board meetings early and get to the airport two to three hours ahead of time. And rather than saying, let's have dinner with the board or stay an extra night, he wanted to fly back to his family, but he also wanted to get to the airport and not go to the frequent flyer, but sit in the terminal. He'd put his baseball cap on, his glasses, he'd sit over the side. And that's how he judged where America was and what we were doing right and wrong. And, and like you, and like John McCain, who's another friend of both of us, uh, before we lost him a number of years ago, he was willing to take the tough stands and and be direct. If you were to look back today and say, boy, there's one lesson, either a mistake I made or success I did that I wish I'd understood when I was 30, what would it be? For me, I learned at Cisco, market transitions and technology changes wait for no one. So you better lead them or you get left behind. And I did a sundown successful. And when I didn't, we got hurt. What would be the one lesson learned that you would teach your younger self if you could go back 30 years and oh, say, my goodness, this is John, the one I'd love to have? Basically, basically uh, uh, accepting the technology changes that were coming that we could see but didn't understand. And that means basically what's today that we see coming that we might not understand. Work harder to understand those changes that are inevitable. And market forces are greater than anything else that you and I can do. You can try to move people. And you can try to do that through your business or your innovations and technologies. But the bottom line is see it coming and see what people can accept. That means you got to know people. You've got to understand the people's trends and what they want in life. They're looking differently today, John, than they were a year or two ago. They're looking for a different lifestyle. They're looking for the purpose and meaning of life more so than just all of the uh, material things of life. And if they can get both and they've hit the grand slam. If they can get one, they're going to look at the quality of life, I think, more so than climbing that ladder to wear themselves out or exasperate, you know, themselves to doing that. So uh, and, and if they can do it in a place they want to be more so in a place that you think they should be, they're going to look for that. So, you know, we're looking at people today, John, we got 10, 10 to 11 million jobs that we're not. They're good jobs that we can't fill. And we get people unemployed. So something's not matching up. We have not 
figured out what they're looking for and what they want. You unlock that one right now and give them the opportunity to be mobile, to be multitask as far as maybe have two and three jobs, but be able to function in two or three different types of capacities with two or three different types of income, not demanding of one big income that's got to support me. I think it's a whole nother transitional change is coming. I just see it with young people. I have grandchildren. They look at it differently than I do. If you want to sit down, you sit down with a 25, 26-year-old grandson or granddaughter. You will be surprised. How much they know and the difference they made. And Joe, I can't think of a better one to end on than that one. It's about, and this is what the whole Chambers Talk series is about. It's about how do you realize technology is going to disrupt every aspect of our lives? And you can either be disrupted or you can have the courage to change and government and business and universities and citizens of a state and a country working together. Understanding the change makes us all nervous, but that is the future. I so want that's to say- the exit. That's the ex- The accessibility that we would have to the internet is exactly yeah. what we're talking about. That opens up the whole world to us. We didn't have that back in the 60s and 70s. I didn't have that. You were you basically reached out. You were you were, you were an adventurer. And, and, and the way you absorb things and your brilliance of absorbing that. And you were willing to take those risks. And God, we're so proud of you. Uh, some of us basically were still in West Virginia. And we didn't have those opportunities. We lived through you. We saw what could be done. And we we're so proud. But now we know that we better be ready for it. And I'm saying now, knowing what I know today and what I didn't know when I was 30, yes. many years ago in West Virginia, something's going to happen. And people are waiting. Millions and millions of people are looking for you or us or together, all of us, to unlock that box, to give them that quality of life or opportunity. And they're looking for that, John. They're telling us. Joe, I could not agree more. I think we can unlock that box. I don't think it's a dream. I agree with you. I agree. I know it is. West Virginia and the U.S. should be able to, and we could be a role model. I want to thank you for your time today. I uh, hear that uh, buzzer, which means you've got a vote coming up. So I know you're you going got to it. You got it. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to today's session. I want to thank my great friend, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, for your leadership, for your courage, for making a difference. You're an American hero, somebody I love and believe in very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing all the people in this session at a number, another Chambers Talks in the future. Thank you once uh, again. Joe. Thank you, my friend. God bless you. God bless you.